And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Friday, March 1st, 2024, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, an industry group has some ideas for setting artificial intelligence standards. Plus, inside the Security Operations Center of the Secret Service. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, starting today, big changes to how the Defense Department tests the cyber readiness posture of its commands, bases, and agencies. Defense officials say they're moving away from a checklist mentality and focusing more on helping commanders understand how cyber risks actually affect their missions. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu has details on the new Cyber Operational Readiness Assessment process. The new approach takes the place of the Command Cyber Readiness Inspections, or CCRIs, that DOD has used for more than a decade. It's meant to put a friendlier face on the inspection process. Notably, they're no longer called inspections at all. And although a lot is changing under the hood, officials argue the name change is important in and of itself. John Porter is the Director of Network Readiness and Security Inspections at Joint Force Headquarters DOD Information Networks. One main thing that we want to look at, we want to see in this is folks are not just preparing for an inspection, right? When we're not there, you're always in assessment mode. You constantly are making sure that your enclaves or what your area of responsibilities are hardened. Uh, the old saying, uh, stay ready so you don't have to get ready. And I think that's one of the major changes that we want to incorporate, we want to emphasize, we want teams to feel like, hey, I'm not just having another inspection come in and folks are looking to date me. I want us to come in and say, hey, I have an assessment coming and we're ready. And then this assessment will help us to identify how we can get stronger. As a practical matter, one of the biggest things that will change under the CORA process is the site visits will no longer be pass-fail tests. Under CCRI, a score of 70 or above was considered passing. Instead, the assessment teams from JFHQ Doden and the military services will use a mix of intelligence data and cyber threat information to figure out how vulnerable a particular organization is to current threats. And importantly, even if a command hasn't completely eliminated vulnerability from its IT infrastructure, it will now get credit if it's taken steps to mitigate the risk that threat might have on its missions. Charles Willey is the headquarters deputy director for readiness and inspections. When we change the word from inspection to assessment and you allow these remediations, now all of a sudden you see the assessor with other individuals from the sites, they're working together on understanding it so they can then remediate it or, or make those changes. And so because they have that opportunity to remediate, I do think there's a there's a tonal shift there that it helps the entire organization, right? Kind of digest it's not just another inspection out to drop a report. Um, the other thing is that the wording has been shifted to risk wording uh, versus like compliant, not compliant. And so it's a lot better to to use terms that they're focused on their mission, right? Then the mission is what matters to those leaders. And so when you you have an implicit connection to their ability, if you're DECA to to sell groceries, or if you're you know uh, another agency, DLA, if you're doing logistics, if they can see how that will affect, impact logistics, you've got a lot more buy-in in, in the cyber domain. Meanwhile, Cora will also use a risk calculus to decide which organizations get assessments and how often. Rather than inspecting commands on fixed timelines, DOD will conduct the visits based on a multi-factor analysis that takes needs and assessment team resources into account. 
Willie says some bases and commands might get Coras multiple times a year. Others might go for several years without one. We're actually using threat intelligence, other information, mission priorities to choose when and where to go. So some places may have this more frequently, other places less frequently. A lot of times the old regimen was like, hey, you failed an inspection, we'll be back in six months. Well, if they've done a good job of remediating, why go there instead of somewhere else that matters? And so the, the focus is to be at the right place at the right time with the limited resources we have, capture that data so that we have it for multiple uses, both to to look at all these great automated tools that private industry has put out there, but we want to make sure they're telling us what we need to know. And officials are hoping their own automated tools will help stretch their limited resources a bit further. The centerpiece is one called DOD Inspection Analysis Tool, or DIET, which won a DOD CIO award for innovation last year. It started as a simple database to store the results of CCRI inspections, but it's since evolved into a more robust platform the department uses to automate its assessment workflows and decide how to conduct them. Eventually, the goal is to let individual commands use Diet to help grade their own cyber readiness between formal site visits. Again, John Porter. We understand that, you know, we, we come in, whether it's once every six months or once every year, who's filling those gaps? How do we fill those gaps in, in, in between? So uh, continuous monitoring is, is always going to be the end state where we can have a real world look at everyone as well as uh, empowering the DAOs to be able to constantly assess their own environment and then we could come in and make sure that, you know, folks are where they need to be. We know we cannot do this alone. It's the bottom line. Even though DOD is trying to take a less adversarial and more partner-focused approach to the assessments, there could still be serious consequences if a CCRA uncovers major cyber vulnerabilities. Nicholas Stepato, JFHQ Doden's inspections branch chief, says in the most extreme cases, the headquarters still has the authority to order commands to disconnect from defense networks. But those decisions will be risk-based. Clear lines between high risk, where this is, and low risk, right? The days of, oh, my shredder doesn't have, my shredder's missing oil, so I failed an inspection, right? We're trying to get away from that, right? Understanding, you know, you probably had a bunch of other things wrong there, and that was just the, 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 uh, the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back. However, right, we want to remove that straw and have a clear line between high risk, and this is what we care about, versus low risk, low threat, this is what we don't care about. Um, and I think CORE enables that and helps get that mindset away from there. Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, inside the Security Operations Center of the Secret Service. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Secret Service operates a broad range of applications for its diverse missions. The most well-known are guarding executive federal personnel and integrity of U.S. currency. But it also has its own cybersecurity requirements, for which it has its own security operations center. I spoke with the Secret Service's chief information security officer, Ray Luongo. In a wide-ranging interview, here's an excerpt. Because of that breadth of mission, it's actually a little easier to take the more traditional approach and then deviate from that. So, you know, we have a a pretty standard approach to our cybersecurity operations center. Above that, I have two sides of my organization. I have the IAGRC side, not as interesting as the SOC side. But on the cybersecurity side, uh, it's very traditional. I have a core group of federal employees who are my security engineers, all those traditional things engineering security solutions, integrating them, uh, developing tools as needed to do that. 
Then I have a threat hunting team that we're, we're still maturing, but I'm very proud of having to allow us to look for those non-traditional things that wouldn't be caught by the SOC implementation. Uh, and then my SOC is 24 by 7. Uh, it is an in-house SOC, but it's manned by contractors. But it's not an MSP. It's in-house. And that's pretty much our approach. You know? And just maybe a sense of the range of systems that you have to monitor through that operations center and maybe a overview of the inventory of applications, kind of the yeah. infrastructure and application side. We have a lot of the traditional business practice applications, right? Your ARs, your IT implementations for desktops and administrative stuff. But then we do have unique things that we have to pay attention to, things that might fall into OT for protective services, you know, robots, drones, airspace stuff, those type of things. Joint operation centers for national security events and things like that that do pose some challenges, right? Integrating with not just other federal agencies, but local law enforcement and local agencies like, you know, Department of public works and so forth in the large cities. So those things do provide us some challenges more from the integration standpoint than how we treat them from a security posture. From a cybersecurity posture, we try to treat them as much as anything else in our environment. So there is kind of a bridge in some sense between cybersecurity and overt security in the operational part of life there. Absolutely. There's two sides of that. There's the addition to traditional security. How can cybersecurity and visibility aids physical security? And then there's also just protecting those physical security IT tools, you know, their visualization tools, their uh, analysis tools. We have to protect those too. So there's two sides to that, uh, how we augment them and then how we protect them. And just briefly, the Secret Service Security Operations Center is uniquely to the Secret Service. It's not a shared service situation with, say, other elements in in, um, DHS. I'm going to say yes to it is ours uniquely, but DHS has set up a a federated-type cybersecurity program. So we have daily meetings with the DHS SOC. Our SOC sits in, as all the other SOCs do, with DHS. DHS feeds us Intel, IOCs, other significant things down. And then we obviously have reporting requirements if we were to have any type of event or IR that, you know, was of a significant nature, DHS would, you know, from the government here to help uh, right. go on down and see what we could do. <laughs> Understood. And just looking at the world as it is, and it's a very complicated world with international and national threats kind of intersecting and the attackers getting more sophisticated and more aware of what's inside an agency or an organization so the phishing gets better. What do you see as the top challenges in making sure that the Security Operations Center actually secures things and has got early warning of what could affect it. You know, know, it's interesting in one approach. My my question is going to be very federal or government focused, but I think it all comes down to data. And the problem with data is you either have too much or not enough at the same time. Either we have so much data that our SOC can't, and, and I'm speaking more generally, not my SOC per se, but you have so much data that you can't parse through it and analyze it in a timely enough manner for it to be actionable. So that's one problem. The other problem is, do you have blind spots and do you not have enough data to see what's going on in your network? So, you know, it's two sides of the same coin, but it's all revolving around data. So that's the biggest problem I think any SOC, including mine, will potentially have. The other part of that is how that equates to a federal SOC. I think sometimes we get mandates that require us to implement a strategy that may incur cost or may incur uh, the need for FTEs, et cetera, uh, but the timelines do not prescribe to traditional federal budgeting timelines. 
And I think that's huge. You know, if we're working on a three to five year budget cycle, but I'm told to implement something in the next six months or 12 months, I have to find ways to finance that or logistically support that. And that can be, you know, some type of discretionary fund that I can augment or I can utilize unfunded requests that somehow get magically approved at some level within the organization, or I have to rob Peter to pay Paul from the current budget to support that mandate. Uh, and that's a huge challenge I see across the federal government. Yeah, that's pretty much, you name the program, they probably have that issue. But getting back to the data and the possibility of just too much data, data overload versus having blind spots, with data coming in from all of these different sensors and all of these different cybersecurity tools that you have operating, you must have kind of a meta set of tools on top of that to manage the data. How does that work? You absolutely do, and we do. It's all about data normalization, data minimization, right? If I can look for where I have redundant data coming from multiple sources, can I reduce that data set? Can I make sure I'm talking about the same data point across multiple disassociated systems by normalizing that data? And then we need to periodically look across our infrastructure and see if we have a blind spot. That can be from traditional you know, incident response exercises. That can be from some type of attack surface uh, detection system, some way to see if we're not seeing what we should. But I think the basis there comes down to data normalization and data minimization. And you must do this in conjunction, as you said, with the other elements, say, across DHS, because DHS might attract the same threats from multiple Mm -hmm. sources in its multiple components. Well, absolutely. Now, you know, just because of the breadth of what we're talking about, uh, we do rely on DHS to aggregate our data up. Sometimes they'll ask us to normalize at our level, but sometimes they normalize at their level. But I do think it's imperative that they have insight into what's going on in my network, as well as my peer component networks, because as we all know, what one sees, the others may see. Uh, And it may be a subset, right? When we talk about IOCs for a given actor, those IOCs may change from target set to target set. But at some point, if a higher level can put that together and see it, we're all going to be better combined. And sometimes there is angst on on letting someone else come in and look at our data, right? But uh, I think it's incredibly important for that to happen. Sure. And how has cloud affected all of this? Cloud definitely exasperates the problem, right? Cloud takes our data and hopefully in a controlled manner, puts it you know, outside your physical perimeter in some cases, right? You know, if we actually take our data and we're doing any type of Fed ramping or anything like that, our data is literally leaving our physical perimeter, our data center, and going somewhere else. So we have to look at those controls, those logical controls, to make sure that we, one, have visibility into that. And it adds an obfuscated layer, right? All the virtualization layer of cloud is obfuscated. So we're actually hoping, with some good indicators, that that cloud solution is secure and our data and our processing and our tools are secure in that solution. So it's twofold. So we have to take a kind of a forked approach. I have to make sure my stuff is safe as much as I can. And I have to, with some level of you know trust but verify that the cloud infrastructure is also safe. Yeah, that gets complicated because I think under the service level agreements, often the cloud won't guarantee the security of your application if it's inherently unsecure when it's rendered in the cloud. Well, absolutely. And that's why, you know, as, as much as we don't, no one likes to talk about compliance, it's kind of an ugly word, making sure that we still maintain that, that same level of, you know, whether it's a SaaS or, or an, you know, an IAS or PAS, whatever that is that we're putting in the cloud, making sure that it has the same rigor that we do for our on-prem solutions. Because to your point, the cloud provider isn't going to guarantee 
the solution I put in there is secure, they're going to guarantee that their cloud infrastructure is secure. And that causes some angst because now some organizations, especially when we're talking about FedRAMP, they're making sure there's two compliances in place. And that can be painful. Right, because a given attack could say it gets a password or it gets some kind of administrative rights, whether that is a virtual system in the cloud or, say, in your data center somewhere, the effect is the same if they reach the application. Yep. No, absolutely. And you know, people like to talk about attacks in the context of someone's going to get my data. There's other reasons to do attacks. You know, my, my career, I've, I've been on both sides of this fence. And to understand that, you know, if their intent is potentially just to perform a DOS, well, they can do that at the hypervisor level within a cloud solution if they have access to that as well as doing it on the platform itself that I put up there. So sometimes we get so focused that our attack is data-driven, you know, they're coming after our data. That may not be the true intent. Right, yes, because you do have that operational component to the agency, and if they can disrupt that, they could potentially do more damage to the nation, really. Absolutely. My guest is Ray Luongo. He's the Chief Information Security Officer of the Secret Service. And let's talk about certifications. A few years ago, there was a big drive, you know, from various nonprofit bodies to push certification. And a lot of the equipment vendors and software vendors had their own sets of certifications. How valuable do you consider those? Do you look for people to be certified from the contractors that are working in your SOC? Yeah, so absolutely. So my career has allowed me to be involved in workforce development, including in coordination with some of these certification bodies. And, you know, certifications are nothing but an indicator of a potential skill, right? I'm saying, hey, if this certification is held, that individual at least at some point met or exceeded a certain set of KSAs. You know, whether they can apply those or not is, is a different conversation. So when we look at certifications, and we do it both with our government employees as well as with our contracted vendors, what we're really doing is buying down some risk. We're saying, hey, if we start at this certification level, there's a level of assurance that they know certain things that I don't have to train them or not. So with contractors, absolutely, because I am paying a contractor to bring in a skilled person at a certain level. That's the end of that conversation, in my opinion. Now, if I retool or if I revamp my SOC in a way that changes that certification, that's a different conversation, right? But with federal employees, I think it's really important to understand that that cert is just an indicator. And as part of good workforce development, I need to provide opportunities for people who may not need a cert today, but have a career path that may in the future have the opportunity to achieve that cert. So they're ready to take those higher roles. For those contractor employees, though, then you do require certain certifications at the kind of a table stakes. Yeah, there you know there are obviously some that are mandated. Certain privilege levels must meet certain have certain criteria. I think the best way to approach that is make sure we never solely focus unless it's truly a specific technology, but give multiple potential certifications that'll meet that KSA or that knowledge set goals. You know, to say I don't want to call out anyone over individually, but saying you must have this particular cert versus one of these three or four will meet the criteria. I think it's better to give that breath. Right. And it's something of a leap of faith, though, to use contractors in such sensitive roles because they do have administrative rights to some degree to your systems, fair to say. Yep. No, absolutely. But doing good privileged access management uh, overseas that some people disagree with me, but I have this philosophy about employees. If I hire someone in, whether it's a Fed or a contractor, if they're performing a work role, it's the work role that's my focus. Now, obviously, there's things we can't do depending on the scope of the contract or certain legal requirements about what we can and can't discuss with contractors, those type of things. But if I'm paying a SOC employee, I I personally 
don't want to limit it by the fact that that employee is a contractor or a federal employee. They're doing a job. They need to have all the tools to do that job. And if that includes elevated privileges, I have to provide trust you know, in, in that person to do that. Sure. And I wanted to get back to one question with respect to interagency cooperation. And we talked about how the Secret Service SOC interacts with the DHS SOC and the component SOCs across Homeland Security and there's regular communications. But, you know, one time Secret Service was in Treasury and a similar role type agency, you might say, is the FBI. Do you have cross-departmental cooperation or information sharing of any kind? So, so we do at a more informal level. You know, there is no problem with me reaching out to any of those organizations for recommendations, information, or anything like that. As far as a formal relationship, that's more handled through DHS, you know, department to department versus component to component. There's never a limitation on being able to pick up a phone. And what about the relationship with operational elements of the Secret Service? So, for example, suppose there's a major presidential trip, and that takes, you know, Lord knows how much communication and planning and detail work. And you have to look outward, you know, from a small circle to see what the threats are. Is there information that is worthy of sharing or is it necessary sometimes for the operational elements who are searching the Internet for things that could morph into a threat somewhere and the Security Operations Center for the routine cybersecurity work that you're doing? Yeah, no, absolutely. Our, our criminal investigation division is, is very robust in informing of those, those outlook-looking things, you know, as well as the other elements. But the other elements, those are kind of it, like not about it, but like the SOC and our criminal investigation division, those are kind of those more cybersecurity-focused ones. They see it more from uh, what are criminals doing, and that does feed us. And then between us and them, we feed the rest of the organizations. It's not to say that if an organ, one of those other teams was doing their mission and found something, absolutely we'd be informed of it. And probably vice versa. Yeah, yeah. Whenever the teams go to do, whether it's presidential protection details or whether it's a national security event, especially the national security events, we have personnel on the ground with that team coordination as an integral part of making sure they have a direct line to cybersecurity. All right. And let's talk about tools for a moment, because agencies probably have too many tools. Most of them say that, and they wish they could be more efficient at using the ones they have. Maybe there's 99 other functions they haven't signed up to. Are the tools and the tool sets the Secret Service choices? That is to say, the contractor that's operating the SOC will work with whatever tools that you feel as the CISO are in the best interests of the agency? I hope so, because that's what we're going to tell them to use. But, you know, there's a double-edged sword, right? If I have a, a statement of work that has contractors at a certain scale, and if I go too specific on what I need them to know, you know, we talked about this early recertification, if I bring in a new tool, I have to understand that, you know, if the statement of work doesn't say you must supply people that know X tool, I have to figure out how to integrate that. I have to provide that. I think a lot of times we forget that we're bringing in the newest and greatest tool but integration will have a productivity hit. And too many people forget that. They want a turnkey solution, which is great, but that doesn't mean all the employees, contractor or Fed, are going to be as turnkey as that solution is going to be. So we have to understand that there is an integration period that incorporates the people and that skill set, not just the technology into our solution. And if the contractor were to say, well, we see what you're trying to do, but if you use this tool, it would integrate much faster and we would be more efficient or whatever the case might be, you're open to that also. Absolutely. I'd be, I'd be remiss if I didn't take advantage of those cybersecurity experts too. One reason we hire, to this point, we hire contracts is they can fill an immediate cybersecurity need for me. 
if I didn't listen to their experience, where they're hopefully in other places, both civilian or corporate and govy, I'd be missing a huge resource on doing my job to analyze the solutions. And with respect to the systems that are of record, say the operational systems or the IT systems owned by the CIO function or owned by the different operating parts of the Secret Service that have their own enterprise applications, who has the authority to, say, stop them or interrupt them if there's a cyber threat? Can the SOC do that or do you have to alert the program owner and say, hey, we see some, you know, activity there that could really threaten this application? Yeah, there's, there's a good, it depends on that answer, right? Um, it depends on the level of threat. Uh, but the ultimate authorizing official, which is uh, the CIO, Kevin Nally, he has the authority to do those things. Depending on the threat, you know, the tier one SOC personnel has, you know, by design, limited immediate action, but we have an elevation process. Obviously, the grand friction between operations and security are going to have to come into play. And that's a decision, you know, I'd have with Kevin Nally. But, uh, Anything as far as impacting true operations, not just the day-to-day functions, that would go up through Kevin Nally, the CIO, to the director. And do contemporary SOCs have any outbound role at all? Say, maybe they want to attribute a source to what is an attack, or do you leave that to other elements? So I think we would definitely provide feedback to that. And my threat hunting team may have some in their kind of threat intel role. I tend to be of the mindset that attribution and that type of Uh, aggregation to a campaign needs to be a higher level. And I would probably engage DHS on that because they would have that breadth of scope. My SOC, nothing against them, they're wonderful, but their focus is here. To truly build out a campaign or divide, uh, you know, ultimate attribution is something I don't really want to put on them. I have a philosophy on attribution, unless we're going to demarch them, blow them up or sue them, I just want them out of my network. So I don't want my tier one SOC imposed in that level. Uh, I would bring that up higher. Anything else people need to know about uh, what's going on with Secret Service SOC or best practices in SOCs generally? I think there's a lot going on in cybersecurity these days, and I think there's a lot of things going on generally with IT and and, and cyber as a whole. Um, One thing I would ask people not to do is be too afraid of AI. Embrace AI. We need to get to a place where AI can be a tool. You know, and as any tool, it, it can be used for ill or good. I think from cybersecurity, we talked about data and so forth. I think from cybersecurity, AI has the ability to parse through more data faster than a human can. So that minimization process can be really aided by AI. Uh, So AI and things like natural query language will really bring cybersecurity forward, in my opinion. Yes, and you need to make sure you know what is really an AI application versus what is simply an automation application or even a predictive analytic application may not be full-blown AI. Absolutely. I envision a fully trained AI language model focusing on federal cybersecurity data. That's what I wanted to learn on. I wanted to understand that. And then I want to be able to query it with native language queries versus having to know SQL or KQL or pick your querying language. Uh, That's where I think we should be going forward with cybersecurity. Ray Luongo, Chief Information Security Officer at the Secret Service. There's much more to the interview. Find it in its entirety at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, we say goodbye to a trusted voice for federal retirees and those who will retire someday. But first, an industry group has some ideas for setting artificial intelligence standards. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. 
The Biden administration's executive order on artificial intelligence from last fall handed an assignment to the National Institute of Standards and Technology. NIST is supposed to develop guidelines for testing and so-called red teaming of AI models. NIST has a request for comments about what it's supposed to do. One group responding is the Information Technology Industry Council. The council's vice president, Courtney Lang, joins me with more. Courtney, good to have you back. Thanks for having me, Tom. Great to be here today. And what exactly is NIST supposed to do? Because developing standards for artificial intelligence would take it 30 years. Yeah, so there's actually quite a few things that NIST is tasked to do in the executive order. And kind of a couple of buckets that I would break it into is the first bucket is indeed looking at ways in which they can develop standards, best practices, and guidelines to help support the safe and secure development and deployment of AI systems. And so what this looks like in the executive order is they are tasked with developing a companion document to their AI risk management framework focused specifically on generative AI systems. They are also tasked with developing, as you mentioned, standards for AI red teaming or standards that can help organizations test and evaluate the capabilities associated with their AI systems. They are also tasked with taking a look at the existing landscape for content authentication. One of the directives in the executive order is focused on reducing the risks of synthetic content. And so NIST is supposed to be looking at kind of what the existing landscape is like for standards in that area. And then in the event that there are gaps that need to be filled, tasked with then developing additional guidelines and best practices there. And then finally, in the executive order, they're also tasked with developing a global engagement plan for international AI standards. So that's kind of the final area that they're tasked with looking at. So it's not a small number of activities that NIST is tasked with supporting under this executive order. Right. And so they've put out a call for comments, which they do. That's their standard operating procedure pretty much broadly, not just industry, but anyone that wants to comment then can weigh in here. Yep, that's right. The goal is to get as many perspectives and diverse viewpoints as possible so that they have a wide variety of input as they're moving forward with these various directives under the executive order. And what did ITI choose to comment on? What are your big concerns here? First and foremost, there's a lot to unpack, as we just mentioned, in just the directives provided to NIST alone. And so the RFI itself is pretty wide ranging. It's asking for input on quite a lot of different areas, which I just elaborated on. And we tried to respond to every area that we thought was relevant, which is quite a lot in the executive order. So for example, we discussed, you know, how NIST might approach creating this companion document for generative AI risk management. And one of the things we really emphasized in that regard is the importance of working with international counterparts while they are doing this work so that as this moves forward, they are remaining aligned and that approaches can be made interoperable to the extent possible with international counterparts who are also looking at you know, developing similar types of frameworks or ways in which to manage risk associated with generative AI or advanced AI systems. So this is one area that we specifically encourage them to look at. And as a part of that, really highlighted the important role that both developers and deployers play within the AI value chain, because they were specifically interested in learning more about, you know, how transparency functions both within the value chain 
and then kind of externally when the sure. uh, system is deployed. And so just a quick a question, though, about working yeah. with international partners. How do you make sure that we're not aligned with China, which could care less about transparency or ethical deployment at all, really? Yeah. So when we're talking about international counterparts, we're really encouraging this to bring what they're doing to international standards bodies. We think that these are the premier place to be kind of working on the development of these very technical standards so that they can be adopted widely and they are globally recognized and they're really industry driven. And so multiple jurisdictions are involved in standards development bodies. There is a set of rules that those bodies follow. And so What's really interesting about the standards development process is that pretty much no standard goes into that process and remains untouched coming out. So although, you know, you have multiple different countries engaged there, it's really a meeting of the minds and really what comes out is kind of the best of the best ideas sure. that are put in. So in that way, you know, we really encourage participation there, remaining aligned with folks that do have those kind of like-minded ideas and, and are kind of allied in that fashion. We're speaking with Courtney Lang. She's Vice President of Policy, Trust, Data, and Technology for the Information Technology Industry Council. And what about standards for AI? I mean, it's a, such a wide open field with so many different applications. What areas of it can standards have any meaning at this point? There's actually a lot of areas right now where standards can be really helpful, especially because, as you know, we are in a rapidly evolving field. And it feels like, you know, every week there's something new that's happening, you know, things are, are changing rapidly. And so, you know, one of the areas that we've really seen an increased focus on lately is related to red teaming for AI systems. And this is definitely an area where standards can be really helpful. There are- What right is now, red teaming anyway? Red teaming is really something that I'm familiar with primarily from a cybersecurity context, right? So you have- either an internal team of employees or, you know, kind of an external organization that a company will hire in order to break or hack into a system in a way that would reflect, you know, an attack by a malicious actor. And the goal of that is to find, you know, vulnerabilities or security flaws so that they can be patched before that system is, you know, placed on the market. And oftentimes this is a continuous process, but sometimes it's not. When we're talking about AI, this is an area that is, I think, still being kind of figured out because we're really taking what is something that has been very traditionally cybersecurity oriented and now talking about it in a context that is much broader than cybersecurity. Of course, organizations are going to want to test their system for security flaws, but some of the things that we're talking about in the AI context are broader than just security, right? You're talking about the ways in which they might impact people's human rights. You're talking about, you know, ensuring that biased outcomes are mitigated. You're making sure that the model is, you know, secure against malicious attacks or uh, kind of data input attacks, things of that nature. So it's somewhat broader than just what you think of in the cybersecurity context, but what that means when it comes to standards is that right now there are organizations that might be undertaking different types of testing, different types of evaluation. Sometimes it's consistent, sometimes it may not be. And I think right now we're still working towards finding a common agreement as to what exactly red teaming looks like in the AI context. And so that's one area where standards are going to be really helpful moving forward. I imagine one area for standards could also be, say, how you make sure that your algorithm is consistent in its output over time, because that's one of the big issues is drift. And maybe there are ways that you can ensure in an industrial setting that that drift is kept within some sort of parameter. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think another area that standards will be particularly helpful is related to measurement. I think one of the challenging things in AI is really figuring out how you measure not only kind of various outputs and impacts of those outputs, but, you know, the risks associated with it. So having those metrics and really being able to delineate, as you said, you know, what a reasonable range might look like for that kind of thing, or alternatively, you know, how you really constitute what risk looks like is going to be something that's really helpful to actually operationalizing a lot of the things, for example, that are in the current AI risk management framework. I mean, in regular software, the logic never changes. The statements of logic that are executed in hardware and give you your outputs never change. Sometimes for software that runs for 50 years, you might put it on a new machine, but it's the same logic. Artificial intelligence, by definition, changes the logic in the software. And is there a way of measuring what has changed as a way to understand how bias might be coming in? Or is there a way to, say, limit it to only so many lines can be changed or only this part of the algorithm can be changed as it learns through new data? So that, I think, is an area that is still, you know, being explored in some of the international standards development bodies about, you know, how you measure kind of the amount of change, things of that nature. I will say one of the standards that actually recently came out was the ISO 42001 series. And this is an overarching kind of AI systems management standard. And it really offers organizations a framework to look at a lot of these overarching questions. So as they are thinking about, you know, what kind of framework they need to put in place for governance, they have something that they can work with. And then from there, figure out what sorts of components they need to actually leverage in order to address things like, you know, potential bias, potential, you know, concerns related to, you know, how the model is evolving, if it's not supposed to evolve in certain ways, things like that. And a final question, just from your comments that I read, there's something called multiple content authentication techniques. And I was just curious, what is that? Yeah. So one of the things that we've been looking at a lot in conjunction with our member companies is kind of this concern related to the proliferation of, of mis and disinformation, particularly as AI-generated you know, content becomes much more widely accessible and really understanding you know, when and how that content is you know, generated and, and making sure that as an end user, for example, you're aware you know, if and when that content is AI-generated. And so we put out a paper recently on um, AI-generated content authentication techniques. And the overarching thing that came out of that was really that you know, watermarking has been talked about quite a lot in this conversation as kind of the solution for content authentication. And I think what we found as we were digging into this topic a little bit further is that there are a lot of other content authentication techniques that work hand in hand with watermarking. And so as NIST is exploring this landscape in the context of their you know, tasking under the executive order, we've really encouraged them to take into account this fact, right, that there is watermarking, but then there is also you know, things like metadata auditing that really need to go hand in hand with watermarking in order to make it as effective as possible. What's also interesting is that watermarking can take place at different points in the value chain. And so at different points, you know, watermarking might be appropriate, but then at a different point in the value chain, you may want to use a different authentication technique. And so, you know, what we've really encouraged this to do is kind of catalog, right, all of these various content authentication techniques, and then from there, figure out, okay, where are there gaps? Where do we need to make more progress on? And then um, move forward. But really, the, the point of mentioning the multiple content authentication techniques was to highlight that watermarking is not the only solution. You do have things like provenance tracking, like metadata auditing, like 
even human authentication in certain instances where it makes sense that should be paired with watermarking writ large. Well, there's lots we could discuss, but we'll leave it there. Courtney Lang is vice president of policy, trust, data and technology at the Information Technology Industry Council. As always, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much. And we'll post this interview along with a link to the ITI comments at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, we say goodbye to a trusted voice for federal retirees and those who will retire someday. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. For a couple of decades, the For Your Benefit show has aired here on Federal News Network. It was regular listening for anyone planning to retire someday. Host Bob Lines broadcast his final show this past Monday. Because he was such a fixture for our listeners and for those of us at the station, I didn't want Mr. Lines to get away without a final interview with me. Bob, great to have you in my studio. Great to be here in your studio. Now, just review for us. How many years have you been doing for your benefit? How many years? I'd have to say close to 30. But on Federal News Network, since we started about 24 years ago. Right. Wow. Where did you do it before that? I would go on a radio station. And I have a friend, would you come on and talk about taxes? And I said, you want me to talk about taxes? Uh, How long do you expect this show to last? And I said, I'm good for about five or ten minutes, uh, but I I don't think I could do an hour. And that's how I got into it. Actually, I learned how to stand on my feet and talk in front of a group of more than one. And it was my boss in the 70s, hot-tempered Irishman. But if you got beyond the tough part, he was a piece of cake. Very nice, extremely smart, and um, he took me out. It was a franchise firm, and we had franchises all around the country to do consulting work. So he says, you know, we're going to do the annual tour. And I said, does that mean I have to talk, or do I just carry the phone? He said, no, you're going to talk. I didn't sleep for a month. I, I looked at everything I could. The first time we went out, I forget what state it was, and he looked up at me. and said, listen, you're doing pretty good. I'll see you at lunch. Left you there in front of a crowd. In front of a crowd. On your own. Yeah. And I had lunch, and I said, do I have to do this again after? He said, you should be a pro at this now. Yeah. <laughs> he knew you better than you knew yourself in yes, some way. Yes, he did. And um, Those are the best Very, bosses. very thankful. And we should tell people that have been listening to the show here for 24 years at 10 o'clock on Mondays, who is Bob Lines? What's your actual job and profession? Well... I didn't graduate at the top of my class in college, so I took a job, and it it paid decent, but it wasn't particularly pretty. It was like working in a closet, but I learned things that I would have never learned otherwise, and we had some really sharp people, and I would ask, and then my boss would come out, and he said, look at this, and they'd come back and give me a brief on this. All he was doing is trying to find a way to beat me up verbally, and he says, now, next time you come in here, do better homework. And, um, again, I'll go to the grave thanking him. And he didn't let many people in behind the fence. Somehow I got there. I don't know what it was. It certainly wasn't talking about taxes. And uh, that's that's what it did. And then I said, I think I can do this. And I went to work for my friend Don Gold. What exactly are you? You've described yourself as an accountant who doesn't like accounting. But what I realized when I, when I got out of school is – 
I could do the accounting, but it, to me it was boring. And so I kind of looked at doing tax work. Taxes, generally speaking, there's no balance sheet. You don't have to do this or that. You should do things if they're aggressive. You know, you can be aggressive, but you can't be overly aggressive because once that hits IRS's uh, computers, they're going to come after you. So I can give them ideas and, and the like, and that's what it did. And then I uh, went to work for my friend Don Gold, and we grew a large firm. More so from taxes than it was for the accounting, and Don liked accounting more than I did, and uh, that's where I uh, am. And how did you get into the idea, what interested you in helping federal civil servants with their, not just taxes, but general financial advice and life advice that you've been giving them through you and your guests all these years? Well, when I went out on my own, I started a firm, and it's called For Your Benefit. That radio show was that, too. And that's what it did. So I would go out and talk, and then after a while, I was talking to the people at government agencies, can you do this with other people? And I go, oh, yeah, we got somebody that can do benefits. we got somebody to tax. Somebody can do this or that. Everybody's got their own niche. And you get a lot of feedback, too, don't you? I mean, the listeners, they write to us about you, so yeah. that you must get a lot of ideas from the listeners as to what concerns them. That's it. So you, know, you get the feedback from that. You get the feedback from clients and the like, and it just grew. And some of your regular guests have become well-known in the market in their own right. Oh, yeah. Well-known in the market. Tammy Flanagan. Tammy Flanagan, when I first met her, she, she just left the uh, government. And um, it was just started NITP, the retirement firm. And I uh, said, Tammy, uh, we're going to go down to da-da-da-da. And she, like me, the first time, studied and studied and studied and studies. Well, Tammy didn't need to study. So I said to her, I said, as we go along, as I see that you've got a firm grisp, I'm going to be walking backwards. She goes, why? I said, because it's your show, not mine. Yeah, so you did to her what your boss had done to you, knowing exactly. she could handle it. That was it. What happens to the National Institute of Transition Planning? We've got a fair number of people, admin, probably got 10 admin people. Sure. And then we have um, the speakers. And why are the speakers there? To get clients. But they can't sell. We have a rule. You can talk, but if you try to sell, you'll be talking to yourself. Yeah, that's the best way to sell is to not sell in some exactly. cases like that. Create, sure. create the need. Yeah. And earlier you mentioned you weren't at the top of your class. What was the class? Where'd you go to school? Where'd you grow up? Where do you come well, from? Well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a born and raised Wheaton kid, so people around here would know where Wheaton was. And not and, Wheaton, Illinois, by the way. Oh, no, not Wheaton, Illinois. No, Wheaton, you know, Wheaton was, you know, it was, it was a nice place to grow up. Maybe not to stay, but a nice uh, place to grow up. And so I left Wheaton as quickly as I could. I, I got married and... Uh, I went to work for this outfit called General Business Services. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> That's my work history. <laughs> All right. Uh, other than NITP. Right. And we won't reveal your age on the air, but you're still a vigorous guy for the age that you are. And well, what are you going to do next? You know what? My, my father was like this and my mother. We paid no attention to age. Uh, my mother, how old are you? I don't know. And she probably didn't know. And uh, my dad, you know, he, he would know. And they were just, they were smooth. And um, I didn't hear a lot of arguments, you know, maybe a couple of raised voice uh, discussions, but nothing nasty, you know, throwing books around. And, sure. Uh, uh, my dad would take us up to Wheaton High School to play football, not for the team, but, you know, we could play as little kids and he would do this and that. So, you know, I grew, I grew up normal. And then uh, I graduated uh, from school, and I went to work for this 
place called General Business Services, and that's it. Ten years there, and then I said, I can do this. And I told my boss, I said, I think I can do this. He says, well, then why don't you? Get out. (laughs) (laughs) Now, this coming Monday morning, of course, there will be no For Your Benefit show. Yeah. What will you do when you get up on Monday morning now? I'll read the paper. I'll figure out, uh, you know, if somebody had emailed me with a question, uh, and then I'd go to work. And, you know, maybe there wasn't a lot to do, but it was better than sitting at home. But what are you going to do now on Monday mornings, every morning? That's a good question. <laughs> it's a, it's an unknown, but it'll have something to do with something other than accounting. Sure. I, I like taxes, but I never liked accounting. But you don't make Lego ships or you don't pin butterflies on boards or paint pictures nah, of vases you know, of flowers? No, you know. No, no. I, I, whatever you know suits me for the day. Somebody will call up and say, "Hey, you want to go out and have lunch?" Okay. Or somebody else will say, "You want to go out and shoot hoops?" And I go, "Okay." So you know, it's that kind of stuff. Bob Lines has been the host of For Your Benefit Monday mornings here on Federal News Network for twenty-four years. Great having you in, and good luck. Thank you. It's great to be here. Bob Lyons was host of For Your Benefit here on Federal News Network for 24 years. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. High unemployment seems to persist for military spouses. Now agencies have instructions from the White House to improve federal recruitment for that group. A new strategic plan just out from the Office of Personnel Management and the Office of Management and Budget aims to help agencies reach that goal. Here with details, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And why all of a sudden the focus on something that's been going on really for decades, Drew? Right. This is something that the Biden administration, they had an executive order in 2023 to try to improve recruitment and retention in the government of military spouses. It has been a problem for a long time, as you said, but I think it's something that is getting a little bit more attention, both from the executive branch as well as in Congress. Currently, there are about 16,000 federal employees who are the spouses of military members or veterans. But at the same time, as you mentioned, there is a really high unemployment rate for that group. It's about 21 percent compared with an overall unemployment rate of just about three or four percent. So that's really significant. Also, 92 percent of military spouses are women. So it is a really difficult group that they're trying to boost recruitment for. It's often also a reason that military families will consider leaving the service if their spouse is not able to get a job or keep a job. So I think that's that's an issue there as well. Yes, because some military service members are at the edge of poverty, almost as it is with military pay. And if the spouse can't work, then that makes it worse. So what are some of the main goals of the strategic plan? So this new strategic plan is the first of its kind, and it's a way that OMB and OPM are trying to help agencies specifically look at ways to improve recruitment. So some of the ideas that they have in there, they are looking to review their current recruitment policies, see where there might be barriers, and then try to fix those barriers to employment for that group. Really good example Remote work opportunities are really beneficial to military spouses. If you have your spouse as an active duty military member, they might have to move around a lot. So having that remote work opportunity uh, or those types of jobs are really significant. So 
that's one example in the strategic plan where they said, you know, try to emphasize those roles as much as possible and connect more with military spouses. That's just one example, but there's a ton of ways that they're trying to uh, look at ways to improve that recruitment. I guess they can reach out to employers, too. They can't force them to have people allowed to telework, but if they have an employee who's a military spouse, then maybe they can help too. But getting back to the government side, this plan mentioned something called DITO, the Domestic Employees Teleworking Overseas Program. And you and I have talked about that one before. What are agencies being asked to do under DITO? Well, I'll tell you first, Tom, that the DITO program is... DITO, sorry. <laughs> it's a program that's meant to offer remote jobs to spouses of military members or other federal employees who are stationed overseas. So right now the program has just a couple hundred participants and it's mainly for State Department employees and those in the Defense Department. But part of this strategic plan is to try to broaden the scope of that uh, DETO program and look at, you know, are, are there other agencies where you can bring in those opportunities and try to extend them to military spouses as well? Uh, the Social Security Administration mentioned they're looking at potentially standing up a DETO program. We haven't seen any you know, clear signs of the progress there, but other agencies are being now encouraged to adopt a similar program. Right, because there are places that offer jobs around the world in the same way the military does, like the State Department. Whether, you know, HUD could have a Deto job or something, that's something, I guess, will remain to be seen. Any agencies that are models here for having success in, in military spouse hiring? The Department of Health and Human Services is one that has seen a lot of improvement just in recent months. In the last year, they increased their hiring of military spouses by 36%. So just in one year, that's how much they went up, which is quite significant. Um, the chief human capital officer, Bob Levitt, at HHS said that's due to just emphasizing, again, the remote work opportunities and trying to connect directly with military spouses by hosting uh, career fairs and other events and sessions targeted toward that group. He said they're looking to beef that up even more over the next year and, and try to expand it further. Do we have any numbers on that? Because 36% could go from like five people to eight. That's 36%, or was it hundreds maybe? I don't have any specific numbers, but I would say with such a large staff at HHS, it could be, it's probably more than just a handful. And what about the administration elsewhere or Congress? This is something they've been talking about. I remember Michelle Obama had an initiative. She was concentrating on state licensing situations where if you had a license to do something, some kind of an occupation in one state, was there a way you could get states to honor that license when the spouse moved to another state without a whole bunch of rigmarole and expense and cost of getting relicensed? Right. Yeah. There, there is a continued focus on recruitment of military spouses into the federal workforce. For example, just a few months ago, the Office of Personnel Management extended the direct hiring authority that agencies can use to appoint military spouses to positions and forgo some of the traditional hiring procedures. There's also some bills in Congress, for example, one called the Readiness Act that's looking to improve the recruitment and retention of military spouses. And in the strategic plan as well, OPM and OMB mention that they're looking at potentially pursuing a legislative proposal. And I think that would just kind of bolster these similar uh, goals that the administration has right now for that. But will they be also reaching out to states and try to 
work on that particular issue? It wasn't mentioned in the strategic plan, as far as I know, but it, I'm sure it's one avenue that they'd be looking at as well. And did the strategic plan have metrics? You mentioned like HHS could say we have a 36% increase in the number of hires. A good strategic plan should have a metric that they're going to measure against. Right. They did talk about you know how to measure and how to use data to look at how much are they are these plans and these strategies really going to improve the hiring of military spouses. Uh, one example that I can give is that in the strategic plan, OPM mentioned that they're going to add some questions to the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey, or FEVS, to ask military spouses uh, and others working government about some of the strategies that they're looking at here. Yeah, so it's good for the spouses and it's good for retention of the military, they hope. I think that's the goal. It's a two-pronged approach there. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Tammen.